0: Well, we've studied this summer uh, an unusual study, a topical study of a book, not a book of the Bible as we usually do. Though we are trying every week to go back to the Word and to draw forth a sermon appropriate, but uh, a book called Christianity and Liberalism, a book that uh, was written a hundred years ago this year, that uh, explains what has happened to the church in our country and indeed in many parts of the western world don't think about this o- often enough and so wanted to take the opportunity when so many of you were on vacation and in and out well even today i suppose to do something on this line we complete complete that study today if you have a bible and you'd like to turn with me we're going to go to the song of moses in deuteronomy chapter 32 So we conclude our study, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and uh, I'd like to read to you uh, from the Song of Moses. I'm going to be uh, picking up here in verse 28. going to be reading a larger portion of this for context, but we're really going to look at just verses 35 and 36, but I'll start with verse 38 as uh, we break in now to uh, Moses' prophecy to the nation of their future. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. And their vine is the vine of Sodom and their, of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents. And the cruel venom of crow cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me? Sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine in recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people. And have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone. And that there is none remaining bond or free, and he will say, "Where is there? Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be their refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain of the captives from the head of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Amen. Let us pray together once more. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would burn such uh, words into our hearts today, even as Moses gave these words to be memorized by the children of Israel, that they should set them on their hearts and to heed the warnings. So we pray, our Father, that we too, having seen the the greatness of our God and uh, the glory of his word, of his faithfulness, even in judgment and justice, that we too would uh, be faithful in our time and in our day. And we pray that you would write these words, as it were, writing your law upon our hearts, that we should be careful to observe it all the days of our life through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well... A few years ago, I went to a city, uh, uh, the city of Boston, Massachusetts, for an academic conference for Christian field educators. That was the city, of course, that was founded by the Puritan fathers who landed and set up the colony there back in 1630 with a purpose and a view to bring the gospel to a whole new continent that city has a rich Christian history and has produced such influential figures as Jonathan Edwards and Cotton Mather. And while we were there, we went and visited the historic Park Street Church downtown, a congregational church of uh, great faith, uh, one of the landmarks of the city, the place where you might know the name Harold John Ockingay preached for many years. The steeple of that church rises to 217 feet. And when it was completed, it was the tallest structure in the country for almost two decades. That church was founded in 1804 when Boston was going Unitarian. The new divinity had come to Yale and other places. And this church was set up as a a faithful gospel witness in a Trinitarian missionary faith. And that old downtown church, you'll know, you might know is still very strong in the faith today. In fact, well, I was glad to see they use the same Red Trinity hymnal as we do. So you know it's good, right? Okay. The church is active and vibrant with well over 2,000 people attending its morning and evening services as well as various ministries and activities throughout the week. But as you probably would have guessed, that church is a very rare exception downtown. The vast majority of Boston's churches uh, have uh, closed, become bars, apartments, comedy clubs downtown. The churches surviving on endowments are still open an hour a week, but the sermons are preached in large sanctuaries to empty pews as a general rule. Today, Boston is one of the most secular cities in the United States, even only 57 percent of its residents even uh, profess. A faith. It's a very sad story that uh, unfortunately has been repeated in practically every city in our country, although less dramatically, thankfully, here down in the South. But there in Boston, Massachusetts, we also met some people who got a grant from the Pew Charitable Trust, I think, to study the decline of Christianity in Boston. What happened? What happened to this former stronghold of Puritanism? Well, to everyone's astonishment, even the researchers themselves, they found that Boston today has more churches per capita in its whole history, going even back to colonial times. Rather than declining in the last 40 years, the number of churches in Boston has doubled within the city limits from 300 to 600. Yes, despite many historically liberal churches closing their doors, many more congregations were started so that the net result is that the number of churches has doubled in the city limits. In fact, about two thirds of Boston's churches were founded after 1965. Well, this was a great shock, I say, not only to the researchers, but to those who read the report. And you you say, driving around, where are these churches? You might not notice them if you go downtown, because the new churches don't have 217-foot steeples. We went to one of those newer churches, which uh, took over a dilapidated warehouse. Uh, Actually, what happened was that a church, a Hispanic church, left Cambridge very nice college area um, in the early 90s, and moved to one of the most crime-ridden places in inner-city Boston, for there it was that a number of Spanish-speaking immigrants were moving in, and the church believed that this was the best way that they could respond to what was happening in the city. This Spanish-speaking church is today packed for multiple services on Sunday morning, uh, and they've developed the whole warehouse inside with rooms and so forth, and they've Planted 12 churches in the Boston area, some in storefronts, some in industrial districts, not the kind of churches that uh, the elites of the city might notice, but they are growing and they are multiplying, and uh, especially among immigrant communities from Korea, China, Africa, South America, but uh, also among even historic Boston residents. So, what am I saying? The point of this introduction is the church has moved on you know one time paul and barnabas were speaking to a synagogue in the great city of pisidian antioch and when they gave the gospel of jesus christ all the people opposed them they scoffed at them and so paul and barnabas grew bold and they said you know it was necessary that we speak the word of god To you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And it says when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. This is the story of the church even today. What I'm saying is Christianity is not in decline. Oh, yes, I understand. In the West and among the people of our country, uh, there is a uh, numerical decline in church membership. Plenty of people have rejected it and, in the apostles' words, judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And The Lord has written Ichabod. The glory has departed over them. However, God has hardly left himself without a people. And it goes forth in power to the nations today. Jesus has not at all given up the project of building his church or conceded defeat to the gates of hell. No, no, no. In every way the gospel of Jesus Christ continues on its career of conquest throughout the nations of the world. This summer, rather than going through a book of the Bible as we usually do, we'd be considering some ideas from a book written exactly 100 years ago, a book that set out the danger that the church was facing in its day while, while the historic faith was still holding the line. He called it Christianity and liberalism, and really the title says it all. It was a sober warning to the church written by Princeton Seminary professor Gresham Machen in order to explain something very confusing that was happening, a new religion that had entered the church in force from a new theology, mostly from Germany. It was a new religion, a natural rather than a supernatural religion, as we've described over those past several weeks, trying to make sense of these words and quoting from authors, uh, including mod- modern authors, so that, so that people would still speak about believing in the resurrection, but not believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Or still saying that Jesus is God, but only in the sense that, that in him was the greatest of the divine spirit, which is in us all. That that there was a new religion that had come into the church that still used Christian terminology while denying its most basic truths. It was very confusing at the time. Difficult to pin down. But Machen had studied in Germany from some of its leading teachers. And he knew that uh, even if people were still saying the right things in America, he had been to the source and he knew what was coming in, that they did not believe what the church had historically believed. And Machen was warning that, left unchecked, this would be the utter end of many churches and even denominations, for two two different faiths cannot inhabit the same church for long. And I think it's small comfort that it's being proved right, as we still see the fallout in, in our day. Uh, the United Methodist Church splitting in two, as some of you will know, this very year. Other things that have uh, come, sometimes more slowly, but nevertheless, two churches—excuse uh, me, two faiths—simply cannot inhabit one church for long. But after having surveyed what this new teaching was and what it meant about man and sin and Christ and salvation and eternal life in the church. Where does that leave us now? And what is our outlook and hope for the future? Well, I'd like to bring our study to an end today, looking at an unlikely passage for this, uh, a passage at the end of Deuteronomy, which, as you can tell, is rather pointed and heavy, but only because it had to be, because it was warning the people of God of a great calamity that was going to befall them considering the passage today with you these words that i read to you are what's called the song of moses the farewell of moses to the children of israel that he wanted them to memorize to sing and to remember always and in this remarkable passage moses tells israel of the centuries that would follow and what would become of them in the days to come they would enter the land of promise but The time would come when they would become careless and indifferent and then idolatrous and wicked and rebellious against the Lord and provoke Him to judgment time and time again. And this picks up where we started reading here as uh, it culminates in verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time and the day of their calamity is at hand and the things come to hasten upon them. That text, by the way, uh, one of, uh, the text of the most famous sermon of Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards from Boston. Okay, their foot shall slide in due time. But after all that warning, we have then a, a, a different and a new note struck in verse 36, where we read that the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. Uh, that is to say, he will not uh, b- bring them judgment uh, until the, uh, the, they are gone, but he will take away those chastisements that were necessary, and he will then show them the blessings of his mercy. He will have compassion on his servants. And when, in the last words of the verse, when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. When God looks upon his people smarting under his judgment, now weak and helpless, when there is no more earthly hope for them, then God will be moved and have compassion on his servants and raise them up. This verse, that is a great promise that uh, this will not be the end, that judgment is not the end for God's people. God is saying, I have spoken of the judgment that I will surely bring upon them in those days. But nevertheless, For my people, I will have compassion. And for them, I will act when they are in this helpless and hopeless condition. When he sees that their strength is gone, then he will have compassion on his servants. Now, these verses have a great fulfillment in the end of uh, the nation of Israel and its exile to Babylon, of course. They, They were fulfilled at that point. Fulfilled, yes, but hardly exhausted. In fact, those two verses are, if they sound familiar to you especially, we just read them in the book of of Hebrews as a warning to that generation of Christians that were in danger of denying the faith of Christ and falling away. Those verses applied to first century Christians who were in the same danger of denying the Lord and of turning their backs upon him. We read in Hebrews chapter 10. We read just a couple of weeks ago, oh, of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot and so forth. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people right from the song of Moses. In fact, these verses are also quoted by Paul in his letter to the Romans as he's teaching us To love our enemies, saying, beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but give place to God's wrath. It's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and so forth. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what am I saying? I'm saying that these verses that we've just read in Deuteronomy that are quoted again and again in the Christian letters... These verses are not only about one historical event that happened once in the life of God's people some 2,500 years ago and are done. No, these verses that I read to you explain principles of God's work in the world and among his people in every generation, even today. Time and again, we find this true We find it demonstrated in church history over the centuries. God will judge his people. Peter writes, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, writing to the church. But but, there's also this other note that we see time and time again fulfilled when he sees that their power is gone. The Lord will have compassion on his servants. It is not a judgment unto destruction. No, it is a chastening, a pruning. It is a cleansing and a reordering of the people of God that they might recognize that they need to turn back to him. Well, we see these principles at work generation after generation in the Bible that the very generation that Moses taught these words to, there in the plain as they were about to cross over into their inheritance, they did go to Canaan. They came into the land of promise, and, and there they conquered because they were clothed with power and the strength of the Spirit. They were told, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Your God is with you. And so they drove out their enemies, and though their enemies had chariots of iron, God had promised, your sandals shall be iron and bronze. But then you know very soon afterward, that generation died and another generation came up, a generation of the judges that forsook the Lord. And then we see the same things happening. The Lord judging his people, Israel, conquered by the Philistines and crying out for mercy and weakness. Samson blinded in his own house. We see later the whole nation Under the judgment, we see a nation in exile lying like dead bones in the valley. Their their power is gone. They're taken away from the land. They are no longer conquering, but they are conquered, weak and helpless. And what then? In all these situations, again and again and again, when their power is gone, when it seems that they're at their end, God has compassion on his servants. And he raises up another generation and God sends Israel deliverer after deliverer so that another judge arises and frees his people from their bondage. Or the book of the law is found in the house of God and a revival ensues. Or John the Baptist comes to a careless nation and preaches fiery sermons preparing for the way of the Lord. The early church is sent out in the power of God and turns the world upside down with the assurance that their risen Lord has all power in heaven and earth. But then we we find the same cycle repeating. We find that God's spirit becomes grieved. Those in Revelation who lost their first love, God's people become like the world again, careless and indifferent until time and time again the cause of God seems practically to be disappearing from the world. And when he sees that their power is gone, it is then that God acts. He has compassion, he delivers them again, and he raises them up to new life. And God pours forth his Spirit from heaven and clothes them with energy and strength. And the valley of dead bones springs to life. This is, I say... The fulfillment of these, of these things, not just in one uh, time and point in history, but in generation after generation, the Lord restoring his powerless people. But before I go on, I have to ask you, what is our condition? We read here about power being gone. How do you know if your power is gone? Do you have power, I ask you? We first have to answer the question, what power is God speaking about? because the danger for us is exactly the same that happened in the church of Laodicea, of supposing, hey, we're strong, we're rich, we have all that we need, while in fact we are weak, poor, and helpless. A delusion that happens when people misjudge the power they are supposed to have. So today, uh, let's briefly consider three things from the passage. The power that is ours, the power of the truth, the judgment that has come, that's come upon even us in our generation, and the hope that we hold, the hope that we still have today. The power of the truth, the judgment that has come, and the hope that we still hold. First then, the power of the truth. This summer, by way of review, we have seen the power of the church that consists in a lively faith in the true God, and the God of truth, who has spoken to His people, the power of the true God and of the God of truth who's spoken to His people, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters the rock. And this is what Moses refers to here just immediately after I left off re- reading in verse 46 in this same passage. After, after he said all these things, Moses Moses now... Having finished his prophecy, he says, Now set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over Jordan to possess. God's people are utterly dependent for their strength upon the word of the mighty God. That word which he had put into their hands and into their hearts, that word which convicts, the word which cleanses, the word which restores, gives grace and hope and engenders love. The word of God which does the work in the church of Christ in brings people in with hungry hearts for more. But time and again, both in biblical and church history, we find the church losing that word and grieving the spirit. We find that in revivals, a recovery of the word of God and it going forth again in new power, like the days of Josiah when the book of the law is found in the temple. Well, it was there the whole time, but it was rediscovered a revival that brings back to the forefront of our thinking the powerful truths of the Word of God and all their majesty. Psalm 107, He sent His Word and He healed them and He delivered them from all their distresses. The power of the church is in the power of the God of truth and the truth of God, a truth that produces strong passion and emotion, a truth that produces action, and decision, nation-shaking reformation, without which the power is gone. In revivals, people are willing to live and die because of the truth of the Word of God. It consumes their mind and their passions and their actions. And if you wonder what's going on in the nations of the world today, where they are by the thousands and millions turning to Christ, it is the power of God and the truth of His Word that are in effect there. But... When the church becomes negligent and cold and indifferent and the world is quietly perishing, then we find Christians timid and ineffective and indifferent. That's where I started reading here back in verse 30. Just, just explain this to me, says the Lord. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? For when we lose this truth of God, we, we grieve the Spirit of God, and we are left without power. We become men pleasers, as the Bible calls it timid, feeble, ineffective. People don't see the church as representing God, they see the church as a worldly and weak people. And the reason that the people of this world don't fear God is because there is so little fear of God in the church and very few people will come to Christ for salvation unless they realize that they have need of it. Machen described the problem in his book. He says that the modernist preacher comes forward not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour, such as the sermon, end quote, well, I tell you, it did fill up the churches in the, in the 1920s. Many people rushed in to hear this preacher preaching not God's word, but human opinions about social problems of the hour. But there was no power. They were, verse 29, a nation void of counsel, nor was there any understanding in them. When the church fears God and trembles at his word and acts accordingly, well, it won't be long until the world fears God also. When the Spirit of God restores the power of God's Word, people are filled with boldness and don't fear to offend the faces of men. They speak to their faces. Well, this is the power of the church and how we need a revival of such power today. I I ask you again, what power have you? Even today, as we meet for worship, as the passages are read, and as the Psalms are sung, do, do you feel your heart burning within you as the scriptures are opened. To this one will I look, says the Lord, the one who trembles at my word. This one has the power of God. Do you know, have you felt the word of God come to your conscience? Have you felt the joy of sins forgiven, of the gospel that we go through every service as we remind you of the free forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and the power that He gives by His Spirit. This is the power that you need. And the power of the God of truth and the truth of God is the power of the church. But I come secondly to my point here that judgment that has come, the judgment that has come. This is at the end here a passage of judgment. Summarized in verse 35, the Lord will judge His people. A fearful thing, as Hebrews points out. Uh, a fearful thing that we have seen in our world today. Uh, one, putting a 1,000 to flight. Two, chasing 10,000. It seems that their rock has sold them. Uh, a hundred years ago, when that new religion was coming in like a flood, Machin wrote, The greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from the enemies outside, but from the enemies within it comes from the presence within the church of a type of faith that is anti-christian and he warned a type of religion that delights in the pious sound of traditional phrases regardless of their meaning and shrinks from controversial matters will never stand amid the shocks of life people might think it's very interesting they might in the 1920s come and crowd Riverside Church to, to hear the sermons of Fosdick and the others. But he warns it has no power, it will not stand the shocks of life. Machen says uh, he calls it liberalism because, well, he writes that the movement is regarded as liberal only by its friends. To those opposed to it, it involves a narrow attention to certain facts and a closing of the eyes to others that are equally vital. This new faith that had come in, that denied Christ's divinity and his miracles and his resurrection and so forth, and denying the very word that taught us these things, well, they called it modernism for modern times. They called it liberalism for the freeness that it gave. They, they were still teaching people to live lives of virtue and goodness and good deeds and to care for their neighbor and for the poor. All, all good things, but the power was gone. Christ was not preached. And Machen explained, this, this cannot last He wrote, the apostles changed men's lives, not by telling them to be good, but by giving them what Paul called the foolishness of the message preached. The message was not, Jesus lived a wonderful life, and you should live like him too. Oh no, the message was Jesus' death for sin and bodily resurrection for the justification of his people. Indeed, he writes, they insisted that on that message rested the eternal Destinies of men, of its reception and rejection. And so you see, large churches in our country embracing the new religion, the, the megachurches of this day in the Pacific Northwest, as I mentioned in Seattle last week, as uh, you weren't here, uh, the largest Presbyterian church in the country uh, uh, I- I- embracing, embracing this faith. Uh, the top 10 seminaries of our country uh, teaching a new generation of ministers, a very different faith. And now, uh, look at the Pacific Northwest, look at the Northeast, look at the top 10 seminaries of our country. Now, all evangelical are reformed. And the churches that were preaching a baptized humanism in the name of Christianity have uh, shrunk, if not closed. We find that there has been a judgment. And this explains what happens when you go downtown, you go down church street, and you see churches that have been converted to coffee shops and uh, uh, bingo halls and whatever else, right? Uh, This explains the landscape of our nation and its uh, historic Christian roots. What happened? Machen told them a hundred years ago, this is what will happen unless we do something about it. Well, what about the present time? Okay, so it explains what has happened in the world, but there is still a warning that we must heed here as this was given to warn the people of God uh, that if they departed from God and from his word, that there would would come a judgment. Well, we do worry that in parts of the evangelical church we find a creeping liberalism. Not so much that truths these days are denied, but ignored. I'll just give you one example of this. Um, but but you but you recognize that in now the bible believing church there are, there are many uh, reasons for concern. I quoted to you some forty three percent of the evangelicals say that uh, Jesus was not God but just a good teacher that 's the liberal doctrine that 's now forty three percent of the evangelical church in in January two thousand and thirteen the evangelical relief Agency World Vision, who works with our denomination and the Southern Baptists, uh, the uh, URC, uh, all kinds of uh, good, good evangelical, solid historic denominations, uh, explicitly Christian evangelical relief agency uh, that does good work. In, in 2013, um, they they uh, they sent out an Easter funding appeal to those sponsoring needy children. And this was the first time that many people realized that uh, there was something going on, as you might have followed some of the news. But this was the, the first indication to many people of, of, of some of the troubles. World Vision began as the evangelistic ministry of Bob Pierce. One man wrote, he was a powerful preacher whom I heard preach when I was a lad in the, my hometown in Liverpool at an evangel, evangelistic crusade. But since then, I've noted many changes The cross that was featured on all the World Vision literature has now morphed into a twinkling star. I began to wonder. At the World Vision booth at a recent pastor's conference, we were asked to fill packages with good things to be sent abroad. And when I asked why there were no Bibles in the passage, I was told they wouldn't know which which language to include. My concern increased. The Easter appeal included a a card to be sent to the deprived children in faraway places, With the World Vision tagline, Building a Better World for Children. I noticed there was no good news of resurrection, but pictures of animals teaching moralistic lessons to bless children. Children, like sheep, one said, should stay close to the family and friends you know. No mention of staying close to the Good Shepherd. Children are like the deer another one said, the deer is sure-footed. Be confident in your abilities like the deer. No mention of the soul. No mention of a thirsty deer panting for God. The card only lacked the Easter bunny. This is not the absence of, of gospel. It is anti-gospel l- learning morality from nature that is being successful within ourselves without dependence upon our Redeemer or Creator. Well, dear friends. This is, the, this is the trouble that we are facing now, I'm sad to say, in many of the large evangelical churches of our day, not because they're large, not because they're evangelical. Don't misunderstand. The, the problem is that these doctrines that have now sifted for a 100 years and killed the very life of the once great churches of our country are making their way into the ones who claim Christ and the word of God. Not that the truths are denied. The situation is just like it was 100 years ago. They're being ignored. Other things are coming in. The teaching of good morality, the helping of needy people, um, millions of dollars being sent to, to do good works in, in the country, uh, the countries of, of the world. But, friends, you, you know, we, we've spent, uh, in the last 40 years, we've spent $1 trillion in Africa, for instance. And it has done many good things, but what will that do unless there is a resurrection of the soul of that great continent? What what will it do unless the people come to a lively faith in Jesus Christ? They've had poverty and hunger and bad water and sexually transmitted diseases for centuries, and they will have it for centuries more What they need is the life of the soul, and that is what the church ultimately needs to give them as well as all these other good things. Well, let us take warning in our day today. The judgment that has come, it may not be long if the church in our day doesn't recognize and wake up to the truth that we once professed. Third, the hope that we hold. The hope that we hold, ultimately, after this uh, passage, uh, gives all of its uh, uh, very pointed warnings. It does point us to a, a, a number of things. Not only does God, see when, when he sees that their power is gone, has compassion on his servants and raises them up again. We have this uh, ending, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. He will avenge the blood of his servants. That is, that he will vindicate them, render vengeance to his adversaries, but provide atonement for his land and for his people. There, the promises for the people of God that he will at the end provide atonement for them and that the nations of the earth rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is the hope that we hold. The Lord will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. And with this point, I'll I'll conclude. Time and again, it, it has seemed in America that vital religion is slipping away, that The the church has no earthly hope, but it was then that God had compassion and revived his people. It's happened again and again through the centuries. It's happened again and again in America, in the first great awakening, many other things. Baxter, Baxter Dickinson gave a classic definition 100 years ago of what we mean by a revival. He writes, by a revival of religion... We understand the uncommon and general interest in the subject of salvation produced by the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of divine truth. This work is very commonly preceded by a prevailing and affecting coldness on the subject of personal religion, such as leads Christians to feel the necessity of extraordinary prayer for themselves and for others. And in its progress, the thoughtless are alarmed, convicted of their guilt. They inquire, what shall they do? They receive Jesus as their Savior, rejoice in the hope of future glory, join themselves to the people of God, and in important respects, pursue a new course of life, quote. Well, did you get all that? What he says is, in in, in revivals, commonly, we see this time and again, there is a a season of coldness and deadness. It seems that there is no power left in the people of God. And uh, Christians driven to feel the need for extraordinary prayer for themselves and others and then the holy spirit being poured out again people that people see more conversions in a few weeks than they have seen in their whole lifetimes uh they join themselves to the people of god and and uh, a a holy and a fruitful life is what is what has resulted it it happened in uh, those uh, days in the uh, 1800s when Park City's Church was being built in Boston, and many other churches were countering the, the slide into deism, people thought deism was going to take over the country, but of course, deism is long gone, and the church lives on today It, it happened again fifty years later as the coldness of the uh, of the country uh, uh, returned, and a new generation of leaders came, Wesley and Whitfield and uh, the tenants. Uh, led uh, a new day. And, of course, Jonathan Edwards, who I I mentioned earlier, preached to thousands uh, as well with them. It needs to be underlined that when we speak of revival, we're speaking of the work of God, a sovereign work of the Spirit of God, not processes in history. A revival can't be organized. It's not like you go down here to one of the signs and he says, Revival, uh, September 5th. No, it's, it's not organized or produced by human zeal or endeavor, In a revival, God rends the heavens and comes down and deals with the hearts of his weak people, raising them up, making bare his arm, acting for them again, bringing them conviction, and giving them new power in life in the midst of darkness. It's God coming to his people in such a way that human plans are confounded. Men are humbled in the dust. There's a pervasive consciousness that God has come. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says, And you hear the sound of it, though you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. We are overdue for such a revival. But dear friends, it is our hope. And so I pray that you would pray also that uh, we would see such hope today. For by the Holy Spirit's irresistible power, the most improbable things happen. Israel, who is withered like a valley of dry bones, is brought out of the grave on the day of Pentecost, the very people who crucified Jesus are brought into his church. We have seen the judgments that have come from the hand of God time and again as God's people have turned away in coldness. But thank God, the Lord is full of compassion. When he sees that their power is gone, the Lord has compassion on his people. This is to be our hope. What is your hope today? What power, I say, do you have? Do you know this mighty God who does such things, who brings life from the dead and calls into being the things that are not? This is the one that I preach to you today, and this is the one who is able to transform these hard and dull hearts and these weak lives to be something mighty and great and spectacular for him, He is the God who gives hope today. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for the Lord has provided atonement. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would continue to bless this uh, weak and powerless church in our day. We confess we feel the weakness and the lack of power. Oh, our Father, we wish that we ourselves would uh, have more of this uh, same warning within us that we too would seek and uh, find the power that comes from your word and spirit. We pray that you would not forget your work among us today, and we pray that you would have mercy upon us. We thank you for the uh, opportunities that we have had over this summer to, 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 to learn more of our own life and history and what has happened in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that uh, you would raise not only us up to greater heights of of, uh, living and of believing, but also the the church, which in so many places, even in the towns around us, in Radford, in Blacksburg, in Christiansburg, in the downtown areas, which languishes powerless and, and empty. We pray that these two would be again full of life and vigor by the power of your spirit. Remember the truth of your word, which has been there all the time, but may it be rediscovered as in the days of Josiah. We pray that you would bring continually hungry hearts here, that those who have heard the, the the lies that have found their lives to lack savor and power, that they too, having found the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal glory in him, may be transformed and renewed. And we pray that these two should be overcome with joy and vigor, and that their lives would uh, reflect the joy of good works and of holiness in his name. We thank you for blessing our church today with um, uh, friends young and old, and pray that you would gather us all together in the comfortable um, uh, life uh, of your spirit as we have a peace that the world can neither give nor take away, that no matter how the world uh, rejects or rages against the truth, May the people here know the blessing and the power of it and praise the author of all these things through our Lord.